Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Talk about four particular kinds of costs, or you might call them four categories of costs. And uh, uh, they're there on your note sheet. Let's jump in. The first one uh, is a category I'd call the physical costs. And you've got some blanks here, so let's fill those in right away. Uh, the two uh, big ones that come to my mind right away are uh, what was mentioned, unplanned pregnancies and then uh, sexually transmitted diseases. And both of you, uh, both of those were mentioned. So let me give you a second to write those down. Now, this is one that I think is one of the most dangerous or one of the more dangerous costs. And the reason is, is because often we think that we know that because we know this in our head, therefore we're somehow immune from this. Uh, have you ever noticed in life that, that there's certain things that you know, like we, we all know we could get cancer. But if you get cancer, it's suddenly like, wow, I never thought it would happen to me. Right? And there's a lot of life that's that way. You know, yeah, I know accidents can happen on the, on the freeway and, and people can get killed or or you can get maimed for life or whatever, but I never thought it would happen to me. And something about human nature has this ability to we know certain facts, and yet we, we don't assume that they kind of think that they'll never happen to us, sort of a strange thing about us. And uh, I think this is really true with these, uh, the physical consequences. I mean, we've had such an uh, emphasis in the last 10, 15 years on safe sex and so on to try to protect ourselves from you know, unwanted pregnancies or sexually transmitted diseases, and yet uh, still just huge problem. In fact, um, there in your note sheet, we've got some uh, statistics to fill in, and these are going to come up on PowerPoint for us. So we'll go take them one at a time, uh, just, just to uh, kind of orient us a little bit. Uh, in 1950, there were five known venereal diseases. Today there are, now don't put this in yet. Does anyone want to guess here? Anyone know? Yeah, 50, more than 50. That's right. Let's fill in the blank. Yeah, more than 50. Uh, number two, let's go to the next one. Every day, let's go ahead and fill it in, 33,000 new cases of STDs are reported in America. That's 12 million a year. Let's go to the next one. One in four adults have a permanent STD, 55 million people. And next one, at least 30% of single sexually active Americans have herpes and it's spreading at a rate of 500,000 uh, new cases a year. When I put these statistics together a couple years ago, and these are a couple years old, uh, if I remember right, these were off the uh, website for the U.S. Center for Disease Control in Atlanta. But one thing I know for sure is, is off of there is that uh, when I was on that website and doing some research, they talked, for example, about um, genital herpes. And they said that uh, one out of, um, uh, or they said 45 million adults in the United States uh, have herpes, the uh, uh, HSV type 2. And, um, you know, the sad thing is, of course, once you're infected, you're infected for life. It's something you never get rid of. And the really scary thing is that often uh, people understand this, that you can transmit the disease uh, even when uh, there are no symptoms. And, and oftentimes, because of the kind of disease it is, you have it in your body, but there aren't symptoms of it yet. And so, uh, but still in that condition, you can still transmit it. And so, um, and, and we haven't even talked about, I mean, that would be one of the more kind of minor, so to speak, uh, STDs compared to the obvious, the bigger ones, and especially uh, AIDS. But the interesting thing is, is that, uh, you know, there's been such a, an emphasis on having safe sex. And I think often it's easy to stick our heads in the sand and say that, okay, well, then this doesn't really apply to me or, or whatever. But the reality is there's, there's really no such thing as totally safe sex um, when you're, when you're uh, being promiscuous. Because um, the reality is, when you're having sex, you're really having sex with not only that person, but in a, in a biological sense, you're sort of having sex with everyone that they've had sex for, with. And in fact, even on the U.S. Center for Disease Control, you know, it's interesting because the government and media put so much emphasis into the safe sex theme. And in fact, I don't know if you've noticed, but in the last few years, they aren't talking as much about safe sex, but uh, have you noticed what it's switched to? It's safer sex. And, and, the, and the reason for that switch is simply that, um, that there is no such thing. In fact, on the website of the U.S. Center for Disease Control, which is not really a conservative organization, um, 
this is a quote that I took from there. It says, a, a consistent and correct use of latex condoms um, is the best protection. However, condoms do not provide complete protection. And so um, I, I think that this is one that many times that we almost will downplay. It's like, oh, yeah, I know that. Okay, I, I know that. And so therefore, it can't happen to me. And yet, as with the statistics have shown, uh, that you know, 33,000 cases, what was it, a day or whatever? I mean, it's unbelievable the, uh, the spread of STDs as they've gone from five to over 50 in the last, uh, in the last 50 years. Okay, let's move on. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that one because it is rather obvious, but I wanted to underline it some because it's one of those things that's obvious until it happens to you, and then you wonder, how could I have been so naive or how could I have been so uh, negligent? Okay, number two. Now, the second kind of cost that we're going to talk about, kind of a category, is the emotional costs. And sometimes these categories overlap a tad, and so uh, you'll see it as we go on. And, and there's certainly a lot of emotional costs, and, and we're just going to talk about one. But I do want to focus on that one that, to me, is one of the biggest ones that the gentleman back here mentioned, this uh, kind of emotional bonding and ripping that can take place uh, in the, the sexual experience. We've talked about this briefly uh, in, uh, in the last couple of months, just kind of touched on it, but I want to focus on it just a little bit more clearly just to understand kind of biblically uh, how this happens. There in your note sheet, there's a quote from Don Ronecker. He wrote a book called Choosing God's Best, sort of one of those books that's popular on kind of a courtship approach to dating. But uh, I think what he says here about, about sex is really helpful. He says, what happens to Christians who have been sexually involved before marriage? I can tell you the answer because I hear their stories almost daily. Like the two pieces of paper glued together and then ripped apart, Christian singles who have not healed from broken relationships carry forever the memories and the reminders of past sexual partners. In fact, those memories often become disruptive and destructive parts of their marriages to other people. Multiple sexual partners means multiple emotional bondage. And I think it's really true. An image that comes to my mind, kind of a graphic image, is you remember when you were a kid? I don't know if you ever did this. Uh, hopefully not. But it's a hot summer day, and you open the freezer door, and you decide to kind of lick the inside of the, the freezer. You know, have, have you ever done that? Maybe I'm done that you have a friend who did that or whatever. It can even kind of happen on an ice cube tray, except that's better because you can go to the faucet and you stick your you know, whole head under and kind of get warm water and release. But, you know, if you've ever done that, it's like you're just stuck. I mean, you, you open your door, you, you stick your tongue on, it looks so cold, and all of a sudden you're there, your friends have dared you or whatever because they know how it happens, and you're stuck there, and now there's only one way <laughs> to get away, and it's very painful. And uh, I, I think of that, that image often comes to my mind when I think of sexuality, the bonding that takes place, and then the ripping of the soul that, that happens. Now, biblically... And the Bible helps us understand this process. There in your note sheet, I put a couple of verses. And um, here's a single purpose. If you're here for the first time, I'd ask you to always bring your Bible because we, I quote, always use them, except not tonight. And, um, <laughs> and so I want to apologize for that. We usually use it, but just had so much material. Sometimes it's faster just to put it on there and kind of uh, go that way. But um, uh, keep in the habit of bringing them. Anyway. Uh, Genesis 2.24, of course, is the first marriage and uh, where God says to Adam and Eve, for this reason a man will leave his, his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. And so there's some sort of a bonding uh, uh, that happens during the uh, sexual experience. Now, Paul pick, the Apostle Paul picks up on this verse and writes his own commentary on it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And that verse is there on your note sheet as well. And it says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute? Now, let me stop there. There's a lot of talk today about casual sex. Now, would you agree with me that having sex with a prostitute would have to be in the category of what we might call casual sex? And we're not talking like long commitment here. We're not talking about deep emotional involvement, right? So, so we have casual, uh, we, we, we put in the casual category. But here's what I want you to catch. What the Apostle Paul will tell us is that even if it's just with a prostitute, there's a bonding that happens. So let's look what he says. 
Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. He quotes Genesis 2. Flee from sexual immorality. Now catch this. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually, underline this part, sins against his own body. Now it's interesting. I've thought a lot about this because I don't think that what the Apostle Paul is saying, when he he says body, I think he's using in a larger sense against your personhood. And the reason is, you stop and think about it, but there's a lot of, a lot of sins that harm our bodies, with gluttony to drunkenness, there's different, you know, that, that harm us. But he says that the sexual sin has a unique capacity to damage us, a unique capacity to harm us. He says, uh, all other sins commits are outside the body. He who sins sexually sins against his own body or against his own self. And it's interesting to me because I think in our culture today, our society has worked very hard to normalize sexual immorality, to say that it's really no big deal. You know, it's, just, it's not a big deal, so why make a big deal? It is no big deal. If we could just get rid of our faults, uh, you know, uh, kind of ideas about it then, it, then we'd all just be, you know, happier. But the reality is, is there's a bonding that takes place, and whether we want to acknowledge that or not, it just simply does. There in your, uh, well, well, let's go to PowerPoint. I put a long quote on here from uh, Lewis Smead's book, Lewis Smedes is an ethics professor at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. And he has a book called The Sex for Christians. And this is a long quote, but it's really worth it. So let's, uh, let's follow along. He says, sexual intercourse involves two people in a life union. This is the insight that explains Paul's fervent comment on, on the member of Christ's body sleeping with a prostitute. That's the passage we just looked at. It does not matter what the two people have in mind. The whore sells her body with an unwritten understanding that nothing personal will get involved in the deal. The buyer gets his sexual needs satisfied without having anything personally difficult to deal with afterward. He pays his dues and they are done with one another. But none of this affects Paul's point. The reality of the act, unfelt and unnoticed by them, is this. It unites them, body and soul, to each other. It unites them in that strange, impossible to pinpoint sense of one flesh. There is no such thing as casual sex, no matter how casual people are about it. Intercourse signs and seals, and maybe even delivers, a life union. This is why genital sex is always in some way personal sex. Nobody can really do what the prostitute and her customer try. Nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. I I love that line. Afterward, the two people seldom feel the same way toward each other again. They may love each other as never before. They may resent each other. They may only feel comfortable with each other. But after intercourse, the relationship is somehow not what it was before. Casual sex is a contradiction of terms. You know, earlier this year I had a letter from a, uh, a lady uh, in single purpose that talked about this, this whole sense of emotional ripping, and she uh, uh, offered if it, if it would ever be helpful to use it in the group. I really appreciate that. Um, that I, just for you to know, I always ask. I don't ever use anything personal unless uh, people feel comfortable with it, and I, I want you to feel safe sharing your own things. But, um, but listen to what she said. She talks about this in her own life. She says, Mike, thank you for your time the other day and your advice. You said in one of your talks that after you had been intimate and you break up, it's like tearing away of two souls. You were right. Please keep telling the single-purpose group how vital it is to stay pure. There is such a truth to the tearing away of souls. Take care, and if you ever want to share anything I say to you in front of single purpose, it is okay. Just don't say my name. And uh, I just appreciate her willingness to share her experience, but but it is just such a true thing that there is this bonding, there is a ripping, a tearing, and it leads to a leanness of soul as when two people part, they take part of themselves, uh, part of each other with them. And um, okay, let's move on. Number three. Now, 
number one and number two didn't spend a lot of time on. Number three we're going to spend a lot of time on. Um, a lot of things we haven't talked about uh, in this series so far. Um, and it's called the relational costs. We've talked about physical costs, talked about emotional costs, um, and now we're going to talk about the relational costs. Now, the interesting thing about this is that I think most people think today that sex will improve your relationship. If you're in love with someone, um, especially if you're in love with someone and you have sex with them, that it will bring you closer and it will improve your relationship. That is sort of the, the common uh, myth. And there's a certain truth to that, uh, obviously. Uh, uh, obviously, by the, because of the bonding aspect of sex, it can, uh, in a sense, give you a, a closer sense of, of closeness. And so that makes sense. But what is often not understood is that there are some um, relational costs that go with that as well that are very high but often hidden at the front end. So let's talk about them. I'm going to talk about six. The first one we've talked about uh, briefly uh, earlier in the series, but I want to uh, just hit it again. And then the other uh, five, I think, are personally new, brand new. The first one is what I would call a short-circuited emotional intimacy. short-circuited, emotional. Now, um, for a relationship to grow properly, as we've mentioned before, it goes through different stages. Uh, the, you know, the, the opening stage is where you get to know one another and you begin to share your heart increasingly. And so there's emotional connection that's being built. And so I share uh, who I am, you share who you are. As we are spending more time together through the long walks, the long talks, and so on, there's an emotional connection that's being built. And that is a good thing in a, in a growing relationship. And then, and then what needs to happen next is that there comes to a point where I say, you know, I just don't want to live without you. I would rather, I don't want to go through life without you. And you say, yes, I, I feel the same way about you. And so we say, oh, great, okay, we're ready to commit. And so then we, we, we actualize that commitment. Now we've got the emotional bonding, the, the bonding of commitment uh, of, of our wills. And then comes the physical bonding. And so there's an order to these things. We've talked about that. Well, the danger, of course, is that when sex enters into the relationship too soon, because it's such a high power experience, what it tends to do is instead of the long walks, the long talks, the ongoing relationship building that needs to happen to, to make a, a long-term relationship work, a marriage work, what happens is it short circuits it. You tend to just kind of go right for the sexual experience and you don't have this uh, building that, uh, emotional bonding that you need to have to build the relationship in the long term. And, uh, I wanted to give you a quote here uh, on your note sheet. It was just interesting to me. I, I think it's always particularly interesting when you have secular writers saying what kind of God has said all along. And uh, this quote comes from uh, uh, Self Magazine, uh, which is not exactly the you know, citadel of Christian teaching. Um, and it's from a, a, later name, a lady named Helena Rosenberg. And she's giving advice. She's kind of an advice columnist in there. And uh, so notice what she says. And this is, you know, secular advice. She says, if you really want a husband, not just a convenient bed warmer, keep your legs crossed and your ears open. There will be plenty of time for wonderful sex later. The early stages should be reserved for getting to know a man, which includes ascertaining his marriageability. Now catch this. The best way to do this is without the distractions that come with sexual intimacy. Isn't that interesting? You see, a sense that the sexual intimacy can be a distraction in a relationship, can be a very powerful distraction that really blinds you from discerning who a person is, drawing close to them, and discerning their marriageability, discerning whether they really are the kind of person. Uh, sex covers a multitude of sins, so to speak. It, it, you know, it's, just, it's just a powerful experience. Okay, number two. A second relational, uh, relational cost is uh, what I call broken trust. Now, as Christians, we know that God has called us to sexual purity. And we know that it's very high on his importance list. It's a huge thing. We've, we've looked at that in the last, uh, especially the first, uh, uh, first message in the series. And, uh, and so what happens is that, um, that because we're Christians, because we understand that, that when we violate that standard, there's a huge integrity check in our own life, you know, that we, we suddenly feel like, wow, what? But the interesting thing is that we often don't realize is there's a huge integrity cost in the other person's life as well. 
that what we know is that this is a really high standard, this is a really important thing, and this person that I'm dating has not kept that standard. And what it does is so, it sows seeds of distrust about that person and, and whether we can really trust them once we get married. That's kind of funny because we don't really look at ourselves that way. We just look at ourselves as, hey, you know, I just made a mistake. I'm trustworthy. But we look at them, you know, a little bit differently. And often we're not aware of this even until we get married and then the struggles begin coming. Let me, uh, I want to read to you from an article that I came across a, uh, a couple years ago um, from the Focus on the Family magazine. It's from a lady named uh, Heather Jameson. And she wrote the article 10 years into their marriage. And uh, she'd been dating uh, her husband uh, before, you know, before they got married. And they had decided to go ahead and have sex, even though they were both Christians and knew it was the wrong thing to do. And they sort of rationalized it as, well, you know, we're going to get married. And so, you know, it's in God's eyes. You know how we do that. You know, kind of in God's eyes, this whole thing. And so um, that's, that's kind of what they did. And uh, then she's talking in the article about the, the, the damage that that did in their relationship and the, the relationship costs they, uh, they paid. And so let me read her story. She says, during the first four years of uh, marriage, our disappointment with each other often uh, transformed into anger. Our deep-seated deep resentment stemmed from our prior lack of self-control and grew into disrespect for ourselves and for each other. Even though we had been intimate only with each other, the trust essential to marriage, remember we're talking about broken trust, this, the trust essential to marriage had been weakened. How was I to trust the former boyfriend who had participated in sin with me to lead me to new levels of spiritual growth as my husband? On the other hand, how was he to trust his former girlfriend who had given herself contrary to God's will to stay within it in the future? We didn't talk about it, but we fought about it. Stones of premarital sex were dug up, polished, and thrown at each other in times of stress and conflict, only to be buried at the end of the argument for later use. And she talks about, as they went on their relationship, that this led to such problems that eventually they decided to get a divorce. And then in the midst of the divorce process, they began to kind of wake up and say, hey, something's wrong here. We're two Christians. We shouldn't, you know, this, this is not what God would have. And, the, and it led them to some real soul searching and to realize like, what is going on in our lives. And what they, as they kind of, kind of uh, traced it back, they traced back that this is where kind of the issue, the key issue in their relationship. And they had to do some major personal soul searching and repentance um, on their own heart in this whole area th that led to them being able to get back together. She makes this comment. She says, Brian and I grew up during a, an era filled with sexually provocative media, music, and education. The severity of our sin had been lessened in our minds as a result, but the consequences remained real. The sweet taste of our intimacy was now bitter, and even so, confession was long overdue. We thought if we ignored our sin, it would go away. Yet like the yeast in the warming bread, it just grew. And so he, the path for healing for them came. And they had to go back and really face up to this whole issue and deal with it head on and do some real kind of soul uh, cleansing and searching in their own life. But the point is, is I wanted you to catch that, that sense of broken trust. Uh, I talked with a couple this last weekend uh, at church that uh, used to be in single purpose and they met here and uh, uh, got married. And uh, they, they kind of did it God's way. They, they uh, uh, abstained from sexual, uh, you know, having sex until they got married. And they, they had seen in the, in the hot sheet, the announcement sheet here at the church that um, I was teaching on this topic again. And so they caught me after church. And they said, I, I didn't, they didn't know what this week's talk was on. They didn't know anything. But they said, uh, the wife said, she said, Mike, it's unbelievable the difference that that made in our marriage. She said, what I know about my husband is because he respected me in this way and did it God's way. The trust that that created in my heart for him. I now know that no matter what happens in the future, that I will be able to trust him because he was able to control himself in such a difficult area. And these are both, these are two people who've been married before. And for those of you who have been married before or been sexually active, that obviously that makes it much tougher. But it underscores that whole point is that when we take, when we do it God's way here, the trust it creates or the trust it destroys is very powerful. Okay, number three. The third relational cost is uh, impaired judgment. 
And I'm talking about impaired judgment, especially when it comes to selecting the right mate. Uh, the self, uh, self Magazine article touched on this, but I want to spend a little bit more time on it. That, you know, when you're trying to pick out the right partner to spend the rest of your life with, would you agree with me that's a pretty important decision? <laughs> it's pretty hard. And would you also agree with me that it's often not an easy decision? That it's, it's hard to figure that out sometimes, and, and you really need your wits about you, you know? It's not the sort of thing that, that uh, you, you kind of don't want to be at your best at. You know, it's, it's sort of like if you have a really major decision to make, probably it's not best to go out and, and have a bunch of alcoholic drinks tonight, right? It's like that impairs your judgment. And every time you know, a police officer pulls over a, someone who's been drinking, and uh, what do they say? Hey, you know, or it's after a party and they're leaving the bar. What do they say? They say, oh, I can drink. I'm fine, right? And their friends are going, you can't drink. You need, we need to drive. No, no, I'm totally fine. What's going on there? Well, their judgment has been impaired. From their perspective, they really can drive. I mean, they're not lying to you. They really think that they are totally capable. But what's happened is they're under the influence. And as a result, their judgment is impaired. Well, that same thing happens when we're having sex in a relationship. It impairs our judgment. It, it helps us not to see what we need to be seeing. <coughs> I'm going to bring up a, a quote here from uh, Neil Warren's book, uh, Finding the Love of Your Life. Look, this is how he puts it. Uh, you know, of course, a Christian psychologist. Uh, anyway, he says, I'm deeply con uh, convinced that any two people who choose to marry need to maintain clear minds until the moment that they say, I do. Because of this, I believe in sexual abstinence prior to marriage. Sexual intercourse before marriage is a clear act of commitment once you become sexually uh, involved with a potential mate, your ability to think clearly and objectively becomes impossible. That's one reason premarital intercourse is destructive. In one impulsive moment, two people cut short the process of choosing one another, and they rob themselves of their own wisdom. Once they are sexually involved, they forfeit their combined ability to make a wise and unhindered decision. Countless couples are swept away by the powerful feelings that accompany sex and their head in, in, in clouds mindset leads them to marriage. In time, however, the intense emotions may fade and they may discover many problems and differences uh, in their relationship. And uh, that's obviously true in most marriages, <laughs> but um, it's even more true when you, you cloud your mind uh, uh, at the time you need it the most. Okay, number four. The... Uh, the fourth relational cost is uh, comparisons. Now, as human beings, um, we just naturally compare things, don't we? I mean, we just, we just do. I mean, we, we compare uh, Nissans to Toyotas. Uh, you know, we compare Walmarts to Kmarts. Uh, we... We, we just, you know, you, you compare, you know, friends now to friends before, and it's just, we just naturally do that. And so it makes sense that, that in relationships, we compare as well. And if we're sexually active in relationships, then we start comparing sexual experiences. And the problem is, is this sets us up for two, two major problems. And number one is a lack of satisfaction. You know, what happens if the person you're with is like the greatest person, the best relationship, but, you know, they're, they're not, say, in the sexual relationship, you wouldn't say rate it as, on a, as high as someone else you've had. Well, there's a dissatisfaction there, right? You're, you're kind of setting yourself up for, for failure. On the other hand, it also creates a problem of performance, you know, that, that now you feel like you need to perform so that you're better than everyone else that they've been with before, which that creates a, a, a kind of a pressure situation and, and kind of sex, as we saw last month, it, it kind of does best in a relationship of acceptance, not performance. And so one of the problems that happens relationally when we're, we're sexually promiscuous is we start these comparison things that go on that really can cause uh, problems. We're, uh, they're in your note sheet. Well, no, it's not in your note sheet. It's on PowerPoint. Let's look at it from Rick Stedman's book. He talks about a particular case study that I thought was really interesting and said it well. There's a guy named Phil that he talked about, and he said... Um, as Phil admitted to me, it's getting more and more difficult to find a good sexual partner. It's not that the women aren't pretty or passionate. Instead, the problem is within me. I've been to bed with so many different women 
that I can't help but compare them to each other, and I end up feeling dissatisfied somehow with each one. It's like I have a hundred videotapes running in my mind, and I'm with a woman, I run the tapes of the other women, and I compare them in my head, and all this goes on during sex, and sometimes I even forget who I'm with. And obviously, you know, you know it's really interesting here. <laughs> you, you know, what's really interesting here is that this happened even more last week, but I always hear the women gasp when I put this quote on. And the guys kind of go, well, I can understand that. You know, it's sort of, it's just sort of the difference between. But uh, it, it does create a problem. And here's, the, here's the, the thing I want you to catch, that this can be a huge problem even if you're not one, a person that's real comparison-driven. You know, some people are just more naturally comparison-driven people. They're always comparing things like that and so on. And so obviously some people are going to have a bigger struggle with this than others. But what the point is is you have two people in a relationship, and all it does is take one of them to be struggling with this, and it really can cause, you know, huge problems. There in your note sheet, I put a quote. Um, it's actually some research. It's from the uh, Focus on the Family magazine. But you might remember the next, last month, I talked about this study that had been done in 1994 that was the most authoritative study on sexual conduct in uh, at least the last 40 years, perhaps ever, done by University of Chicago researchers. And Focus on the Family picked up on part of this, and they printed part of this, and so here's the quote. It said, a recent survey of sexuality, which was called the most authoritative ever by the U.S. News and World Report, provided some definite answers. These researchers found out not only that sex is better in marriage, but it's best if you've had only one sexual partner in a lifetime. There's a quote from that study. Physical and emotional satisfaction started to decline when people had more than one sexual partner, the researchers said. And so there's this whole comparison thing. It really is a, a, an issue and can be an issue in, in uh, relationships. Okay, number five. The fifth relational cost is a higher divorce rate. Now, this is sort of surprising in a way. Uh, every once in a while, there's something that God says that um, you, you kind of go, well, okay, I'll trust you on this one, but I don't get it. You know, it doesn't make sense or whatever. It's kind of counterintuitive. And I think this is one of them because uh, uh, I remember uh, getting a cell phone a couple years ago, and uh, I was talking to a young lady at the counter, and uh, I was, I don't just, you know, it took forever to get this cell phone. I had a lot of problems with it, and so you know, over the several different times going in there, I got to know her fairly well. And she found out I was one of the pastors here, and she'd been thinking of coming here, and she'd been, kind of made a commitment to Christ years ago, but gotten away with it. And she was currently, the kind of first time I talked to her, she, I, I, uh, she mentioned that she was uh, going to be moving in with her boyfriend. And uh, I said, oh, that's very interesting. And uh, she said, um, <laughs> she didn't know who I was at this point. And uh, I said, really? And she said, yeah. She said, you know, we just, we want to do it the right way. And, uh, <laughs> and she said, uh, you know, so we, we think we want to get married someday, but we want to live together first because we want to make sure we know what we're getting and want to make sure that we have the best, you know, we, we don't make a mistake in who we're marrying. And I said, well, that's really interesting. Did you know that statistics have shown that people who live together before they get married have a much higher rate of divorce? She said, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> There's a lot of things, you know, I could share with you. In fact, I came back... <laughs> I gave her the series from that time, Sex and the Single Life, and uh, never heard back from her. But anyway, um, <laughs> no, seriously, when I'd go in there from time to time, we kind of had this little, you know, friendship developing that was a, a good thing. And, um, but anyway, I haven't seen her in a while. But anyway, um, I think it's often the assumption out there that this is the wise way to go about it, that that if you want to build a marriage that would last, it only makes sense to go through certain stages. And so you kind of emotionally connect, and then you start having sex together to make sure that that's a good thing and that you're compatible there. And, and then if that's working out, then you get uh, kind of move in together, and you make sure that that works out, and then you get married. And it, it kind of makes sense. Doesn't that kind of make sense? No, it doesn't. Okay, well, to me, you know, being the pagan that I am, it does seem like it, it kind of makes, it kind of, to me, it's like, well, yeah, I can see, you know, that kind of makes sense. But statistics have shown exactly the opposite. And there on your note sheet, a uh, couple, couple statistics. The National Center for uh, Health Statistics found that those who are sexually active before marriage, catch this, are, are 60% more 
more likely to divorce than those who wait till marriage. And that is a huge percentage. You know? This is a huge percentage. I mean, if I told you that I had a surefire way to give you a 60%, you know, better chance that you would stay married, I mean, wouldn't you want to know what that secret was? I mean, I'd say, look, you know, okay, I'll tell you one thing to avoid in your life. If you avoid this in your relationship, you will have, you know, you'll avoid a 60% better chance of getting divorced. And I could just see doing a seminar on that. You know, it's like, you could do a seminar on that. You could sell tapes on that. You could come and... You, people would pay a lot of money to come to a place where I could tell them 60%. You could market those babies, you know, do kind of three-monthly installments. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you just uh, call this number, 1-800, you know? We'll take a Visa, we'll take MasterCard. And yet when I get there, all I'd have to do is say one thing. Don't have sex before you get married. <laughs> That's it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Let's look, oh, go back to the statistic. The National Center for Health Statistics uh, found that those who are sexually active before marriage are 60% more likely to divorce than those who wait until marriage. Couples who marry after living together have a 50% higher rate of disruption. This is a national survey of families and households. Look at the next one. Studies show that cohabitors have an 80% greater likelihood of experiencing a marital breakup than couples who marry without a period of cooperative living. One of the most enlightening statistics is that people who cohabit are more likely to be unfaithful to their spouses after getting married. Now those are sort of the statistics. We'll look at the next quote from the Parrot's book on relationships um, because they talk about some of the undergirding uh, principles here. So it's tempting to believe that love sanctifies sex. However... That's a fallacy. Sex, even in the context of a caring and loving relationship, will forever change the dynamics of that relationship. Sexual intercourse draws us into the profound mystery of a one flesh reality. We've already talked about that. It's meant to unite and bond in a deep and wonderful way, but there's a hitch. Now catch this, there's a hitch. Sex outside the lifelong covenant of permanence and fidelity sets up expectations and creates needs that almost always dismantle the relationship. You see, there's, once you start having sex in a relationship, it starts creating certain needs and expectations that if you're not ready to get married, it tends to tear down your marriageability. You see, it tends to, it tends to push you where you don't want to go. And so um, it leads to a higher divorce rate. Now, number six, the sixth relational cost is uh, what I'm calling fewer marriages. Now, let me explain this one. Basically, it's pretty simple if you stop and think about If you can have sex outside of marriage, then there's less motivation to get married, isn't there? And as we look at our country, there is definitely a trend in this direction. And one of the, you know, that if you do uh, kind of sociologist studies and so on, it's just unquestionably true that people are waiting longer to get married and kind of postponing that. In fact, kind of one of the longest in the... In the, uh, in the history of our nation. People are getting married much, much later. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is this a whole deal of sexuality. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, earlier this year, I was having lunch with a friend of mine from Single Purpose, and uh, he was, uh, uh, he and his uh, uh, girlfriend were planning on getting married, and uh, uh, fiance at that point, and they were thinking about moving the date up uh, on their, their wedding. And so, um, he said, uh, what do you think about that? I said, I think it's a great idea. You know, in their particular situation, I think it's a great idea. And he said, yeah, we just want to have sex. <laughs> and I said, I think that's a great idea. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, you know what's going to be really fun? He said, if we do this. I said, what's that? And he said, well, we're just going to tell people, why, why are you moving it up? He says, you know, people always make up these other things, you know? Like, you know, and he's got all these reasons. He says, we're just going to tell them, well, we just want to have sex. Uh, uh, that's it. Only reason. That's it. Just one reason. Um, and we just really want to have sex, and so we're moving that thing up. And uh, the, the funny thing is, is that like in our country, there's this trend to put off marriage, and we've created a culture in our nation today where, where especially women will, will, com, uh, women will complain that, well, men aren't willing to make a commitment. 
Well, stop and think about it. This is how it used to work. Man meets woman, falls in love with the woman. And so they want to have sex, but that was like not okay to do. And so it gave them great motivation to kind of, okay, let's get our finances in order. Let's come up with a plan here. And, and, and you know, there's, there, it's, it is scary getting married. I mean, you, you give up your independence. You give up your choice. You give up certain freedoms. I mean, it's forever. It's, it's, it is, you know, there's financial ramifications. There's a lot of, like, cost to getting married, right? Not just financial, but emotional cost. There is. And so when you take away the motivation, those costs seem bigger and bigger, don't they? But when you have this, uh, you know, this kind of standard, there's a motivation to kind of, hey, it's time to grow up, get a job, you know, come up with a life, make some life, make some commitment. And so it really sets the stage for that. Um, in Winnie Shalit's book that I mentioned a couple of times in the series, uh, she talks about uh, a lady named Sarah that she was interviewing for her book. Um, and it's going to come up on PowerPoint here. And, and I think this kind of, she describes it well. She says, I know at least five guys. This is a 24-year-old girl named Sarah who lives in New York City, okay? And she says, I know at least five guys my age living in New York who I know from school. Each is cohabiting with a different woman. And I, when I have lunch with him sometimes, it's always his friends, nothing more. Now the country says, now anyone who thinks that a man will dump someone who's having sex with him on a regular basis and making breakfast for him and who demands nothing in return from him and allows him to keep his options open in order to gamble on someone who will not have sex with him and wants a commitment first, well, they just don't have a clue. And I think that describes a lot of our culture today, that that, that, is, that is true. And, and so what I'm saying is that our whole culture, as we bought into this, is created in a culture that is kind of commitment-free. It, it's, it's created an environment that doesn't call for commitment. But the, the, you know, as you know in life, you get out of life what you put into life. And if you're not willing to commit to your career, then your career is going to go nowhere. And if you don't commit to your friends, your friends are going to go nowhere. And if you don't commit to marriage, you'll never get married, you see? It's like commitment's part of life. And so, uh, so I think it's a price that we're paying as a culture. And I think one of the things that uh, we want to create here at Single Purpose is a culture that as we buy into that standard together, it creates an environment where we can make commitments because we, we, it kind of takes us back to environment where God would have us where we are willing to make appropriate commitments in our life. Earlier I mentioned that book uh, or that article in Self Magazine. Look at uh, a final quote from that. She says, um, this is her advice to secular women. She says, uh, don't cohabit unless you have a ring and a date. Living with a man without an agreed upon agenda is a foolish waste of time for a woman seeking marriage. You wouldn't give away months or years of your business knowledge or professional skills to someone on the off chance that the recipient might hire you for a full-time position. Why would you be so selfless on the personal front? You see? So we talk about relational costs. We've listed six of them, and they're huge. And especially as you add them up, because there's sort of a geometric proportion here. It's not just one of them. They kind of, each one builds. It's like you pay all these costs. You know, we've got shortcutting tr uh, true intimacy, undercutting trust, impairing our judgment, leading to comparisons, increases our chance of divorce, decreases your chance of marriage. And that's some pretty high costs, and they're often hidden. Now, the last category, we've talked about physical, talked about uh, emotional, talked about relational. The last category is what I call spiritual, the spiritual costs. And I've saved this one for the last because I think it's the most important for us as Christians. If we are wrong with God, it doesn't really matter what we're right with. You know? Isn't that true? It's like, it doesn't matter how good life is going on the job front, the relationship front, the friendship front, the health front. I mean, you can have everything going perfectly. And if you're wrong with God... It's just not okay. It's like it it's kind of poisons the whole thing. And so this whole spiritual cost is huge because it's out of our relationship with God that every other good thing in life comes. It's our strength and it's our joy. It's our reason and purpose for living. And so uh, when we pay spiritual costs, we're paying the highest costs. But I want to talk to you about three specific spiritual costs that we pay. 
when we uh, are in that realm of sexual morality. Number one is probably the most uh, common one, it's, or the most we're most familiar with, it'd be the price of guilt. And often I don't think we think of guilt as a quantifiable uh, you know, substance, but it really is. Um, and it's a painful price to pay. One of the uh, gentlemen mentioned, I believe it was uh, over here on this side, that uh, one of the prices we pay is sort of the morning after uh, uh, that, that sense of separation from God. Jim mentioned that. And uh, it's just so true. It's, uh, it's just a painful experience. Now, it's not an issue of relationship uh, or issue of love, really. It's really an issue of relationship. In other words, God doesn't stop loving us as his children when we uh, disobey him in this area. Uh, it's not a love issue, it's a relationship issue. You know, much like, um, I like to explain it this way, you know, if you have, a, say, a teenage son or daughter, and they uh, uh, take your car without permission, they go out and they stay two hours past their curfew, and they come in the next morning and act as if nothing happened. We've got a relationship problem here, don't we? It's not a love problem, they're your child, you still love them. But we got a relationship problem. There is a, a fracture in the relationship. And, and you're not going to be able to go move on in that relationship until that fracture gets put back together. I mean, you're going to have to have a clarifying conversation, right? You're going to have to have a sit down and say, what is up with this? And there may be some consequences or whatever, but you're going to have to work it out. You don't just kind of ignore that and go on because it's, it's brought something in the relationship. And it's the same way in our relationship with God, that God has made it very clear this is a huge priority for him, our sexual purity in our life. It's a huge deal. Not only because the damage it causes us, but the damage we're doing to someone else. And he says, look, when you damage someone else that way, I'm holding you accountable. This is a big deal. You know, we saw it the first, first uh, message we looked at together. Okay, so the, the fact is, is that guilt is like a warning light on the dashboard of our life that says you're headed the wrong direction, you need to turn around. That's what guilt is. It's a painful warning light. It's an emotional pain that God has built into our system to help us get a clue. To change the metaphor, it's like a lighthouse that's beaming that light, bright light in our eyes, kind of, oh, turn that thing off, saying, don't come this way. If you keep coming this way, you are going to crash into land. You're going to have a shipwreck here. There in your note sheet, a verse from uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10, where Paul talks about how this works. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So there's two different kinds of sorrow. There's two different kinds of guilt. Sometimes we can feel guilty over things we should not feel guilty for. There is such a thing as false guilt. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about true guilt. A true guilt produces a, a, a godly sorrow. It says, I am out of line. And it's, Paul says it, it causes us to repent and then allows us to be saved. So uh, a, a, true, uh, a, a true guilt is like a warning light to pain that God creates in our life in order to help us do the right thing. But it is still a pain. There in your uh, note, no, this is a PowerPoint. Let's bring up the PowerPoint. This is a Gordon, from Gordon McDonald's book, When Men Think Private Thoughts. And so, ladies, if you could just close your eyes and listen. But uh, he talks about guilt, and he says, perhaps no other storm signal is meant to give a more urgent warning than something is wrong and needs to be addressed than what we call the power of guilt. It is a message that comes deep from the soul saying something is terribly wrong. More than a feeling... Or an emotion, guilt is the pain message of the soul, crying out that there has been a violation of God's law or principles that we or our uh, base community has created by which we should live. Guilt is the pain message of the spiritual system. That's a great line. Guilt, mes guilt is a pain message of the spiritual system, but it is a pain message. You know, if you go in here and cut your finger, it hurts. And you're kind of glad it hurts because otherwise if you didn't have pain there, you wouldn't bandage it up. You know, sometimes people like with a leprosy, they, they, it ruins their nerve endings. And so that's why they're always often maimed or, or uh, uh, will uh, do damage to themselves because they don't feel pain. So they go through life kind of cutting themselves or hurting themselves and not even realizing. And then you got causes problems. Well, guilt is a pain message that God's built in to get our attention. But it's still painful. And it's a price we pay. It steals that pain. Uh, it steals it to the point where often you can't even really enjoy 
fully the sexual experience because you just know it's wrong and so it's just the whole thing is, is kind of polluted, you know? And even though it's physically or emotionally pleasurable, it's just sort of like taking a, a great drink and pouring salt in it or something, unless it's a margarita. Okay, um, <laughs> now, number two, spiritual shipwreck. The second price we can pay is spiritual shipwreck. And this is what happens when we ignore the pain message of guilt. How many of you saw the movie Titanic? Did you see that movie? Okay. How many of you didn't see it? How many people have never seen that? Okay, there are some people. That's really good. Yeah, I never saw it either, but I know the story. Um, yeah, I never, you know, I just, it was a long movie, and I just couldn't get into it because I knew how it was going to end. You, know, you just know it's going to die, so anyway. Um, but this is what happens to us. If you kind of picture that movie, you picture the Titanic, what happens when you ignore the pain signal is you can, you can suffer a shipwreck. You see, when, when we first begin to disobey God in an area in our life, that this is a great example, the guilt message comes on pretty strongly, doesn't it? But if you persist in ignoring that guilt message long enough, you can dull it to the place where you actually come so it won't even bother you. And when that happens, you are in danger of ruining and even losing your whole relationship with the Lord. Well, you want to argue whether you never had it and you lost it or whatever, or you, you know, you, you, it really wasn't ever real and so you never really had it. I don't really care, but just practically is that you can suffer spiritual shipwreck. It can come to a place where you can destroy your relationship with Christ permanently. Um, there in your note sheet, there's a verse from 1 Timothy chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy. Remember Timothy, a young single pastor, and he says, Timothy, here's what you've got to do to make it in life. You've got to hold on to faith and a good conscience. Two things. Some have rejected these and have so have shipwrecked their faith. So he says, Timothy, there's two things you have to hold on in your life if you're going to make it. One is you need to hold on to your faith, your, your belief in Jesus. But he said, the second thing you need to hold on to is your conscience your sense of right and wrong. If you, if you let go of that, you violate your conscience long enough, he says, that will destroy you. You will come to the place where it just doesn't even seem like uh, sin anymore. It doesn't even seem like a big deal. He said, and that is when, is that sort of like the, we talked about the leprosy analogy, that's sort of like you're in the most danger of all because you are no longer feeling the pain you should be feeling. There in your note sheet, again from Gordon McDonald's book, the pain message of guilt as a storm message, catch this, does not last indefinitely. It appears that men can outlive guilt by ignoring it or rationalizing its message is untrue or unreliable. Many men live uh, beyond guilt and they generally pay a strong price. So he says that you can come to a place where you either don't feel it or you've rationalized it. Those are the two options. And boy, isn't that true? You see, we have this ability in life that that when we know something is, you know, a standard is given us, like sexual purity, we either have to do one of two things. We either have to change our life to match our standard or change our standard to match our life. See? Always. We got to do one. Because our brain, we can't, psychologists call it cognitive dissonance, where you have like two, uh, kind of two belief systems that are clashing. And, and you just can't handle it. And so you always either change your life to match your beliefs or you change your belief to match your life. It's just the way it works. Um, in uh, E. Michael Jones' book, Degenerate Moderns, which I wish I had time to talk about that book, but I don't. But, he, but look how he puts it. He just really says this well. He says, sexual sins are not the worst sins. And I want to pause here for just a second. You know, single purpose, we talk about sexual sin and sexual purity uh, a fair amount. It will depend. You can be here a year and not hear much about it. Then we'll talk about it a lot in like a series like this. But we talk about it quite a bit. It's a high threat. And sometimes it can create the impression that single purpose thinks or I think or whatever that sexual sin is like the worst sin. That is not true at all. But what I've learned in life is that the battle that's most important for you to win is the battle that you're fighting. And so as single adults in a single community, this is a huge battle that we have to, we have to do battle with. And so we talk about it a lot because you're faced with it a lot, you see? And it has the ability to destroy you so fast that we can't go too long without talking about it because we want to keep you always prepared and always alert to deal with it. But I don't want you to think that I think that sexual sin is the worst sin. I don't. 
It isn't. But it's a very dangerous one. And look what he says. Sexual sins are not the worst sins. However, when left unchecked, they invariably lead to worse sins. God is always willing to forgive. But at a certain point in the struggle against sins of the flesh, people reach a moral threshold of a different sort. At a certain point, they stop asking for forgiveness and they start looking for rationalizations that will allow them to keep on sinning. You catch that what you're saying? This is a real danger, a spiritual shipwreck. If we resist the Holy Spirit long enough, we will come to a place where we will quit looking for uh, forgiveness. We will start looking for rationalizations to justify it. And that's when we're really in trouble. In this last line, as with syphilis, so with the moral life. What starts between the legs often ends up infecting the brain. That's powerful. And it's very true. Okay, number three. The third spiritual cost, then we're done. This is the one that I think we would be least likely to figure out on our own. And this is something that God has to tell us in his word. We just wouldn't get this one. The third one is is dragging Christ into our sexual sin. Let me tell you what I mean here. Um, The Bible teaches, and we'll look at a verse that substantiates in just a second, but the Bible teaches that when a person becomes a Christian, that, uh, that the Holy Spirit, God himself, actually comes to live within them. And, and that we actually become one spirit with the Lord. He comes to dwell in that part of us he calls the spirit. And there's a spiritual union that happens there. And it's not just a metaphor. It's not just a nice way of talking. It's a reality that Jesus really does live within us in a very real, tangible way, in a spiritual sense. And there's a, a union of, of spirits. But then the Bible also teaches, as we saw earlier today, that when we have sex with someone, that there's a physical union. There's a one flesh union that happens. And so what the Bible says is that if we've already united ourselves with the Lord and now we have sex with someone, we are uniting him in the sexual experience. We're, we're dragging him into this illicit sexual experience. Now you might say, well, that's, boy, Mike's kind of stretching it. Well, it seems to be what the Apostle Paul is saying here in this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there in your note sheet. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Your bodies, your physical bodies, you sit here today, your body is a member of Christ himself if you have committed your life to Christ. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said, the two will become one flesh. We've already seen that part of it. But catch the next line. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. There's a spiritual connection there that's very real. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body. He who sexually sins against his own body. Catch this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? It's interesting, we often quote this passage when we're talking about why Christians shouldn't, you know, smoke or drink or, you know, overeat or whatever like that. That's not the context. The context of this passage is sexual purity. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So he says, so don't be dragging the temple of God into this sexual experience. You are dragging Christ with you into this immoral relationship. Now, we may have never realized it before. That may be a new thought to you. But I think it's a powerful reason and understanding why sexual purity is so important. Now, just a final challenge. As we wrap this thing up, in the last three months, we spent a lot of time giving a broad overview of kind of God's perspective on sex. Talked about what it teaches in the Bible, his view of it, the purpose of it. We've talked about the benefits of sexual purity last month, this month more the downside, the price we pay, the high and hidden costs. But sooner or later, you will have to come in your life to a decision point whether you embrace with all of your heart and soul, whether you embrace this, uh, this standard or not. And I want to leave you just with one thought as you're, as you're deciding on this. You know, the book of Proverbs talks a lot about sexual purity. It talks a lot about sexual morality. 
But it's interesting because more often than not, when the book of Proverbs talks about sexuality, it doesn't talk about sexual immorality in terms of it being evil, although it does do that at times. It tends to talk about it more in terms of being foolish. So if you study the book of Proverbs with this in mind, what you'll see over and over again is a person who is sexually immoral is seen not as a bad man, but as a foolish man. He's foolish because he doesn't understand the high and hidden costs of sexual immorality. What he does is he only sees the front end. He doesn't see the, kind of the, the end of the story. And I would just challenge you that if this is not a commitment that you've made in your life, that you would take God's instruction seriously and that you would not play the part of the fool but that you would be, play the part of the wise person. You really trust him in this matter. And for those of you who are here and just really under a sense of conviction right now, because the Holy Spirit is just really all over you. He's, he's, he's just telling you that this is true and you need to make this commitment in your life. And, and maybe for some of you, there's a tremendous sense of guilt or even regret as you look back over your experience and say, oh man, I have paid those prices. And if only I had known. I had an email from a lady Last week it said, man, if I'd only known this 20 years ago. And, and often when you do a study like this, there can be a tremendous sense of guilt and regret. But you know, I'm here to tell you that, that the one we serve, the Jesus we serve, is a healer of souls. And I really want to challenge you that if you will come close to him and draw close to him, he will come close to you. And he can renew you and remake you and heal your soul and heal that ripping that's taken place and I want to leave you with a verse there from Isaiah 54. It's there on your note sheet where he talks about God's love. And, and I want to set the, the context. This verse was given to Israel after they'd been so wicked for hundreds of years that God had had to kick them out of their land into, into, into the land of Babylon. And that's the context. And yet Isaiah says, even there, God's love has never changed for you. And look what it says. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, Yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. I just want to encourage you, if God is speaking to you today, that you would listen to him and obey, but you would also come to him and let him wash your guilt away, let him pull you to himself, let him restore and heal you, and give you the strength to follow him in this very important but very difficult area of life. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for these men and women as just, they're just up against a, a big challenge in their lives. And yet, Lord, we've seen the dangers of not being wise. And so I pray that you give them courage, you'd give them strength, that you'd give them the faith to believe that fresh starts are possible with you, to give them the faith to believe that they can be remade and, re, and, and be made whole again if they will only submit and come back and with a whole heart embrace what you have set out in your word. I pray that you minister to them, encourage them, and love them as only you can do. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Right. Well, thank you for this time to talk about this important subject. And uh, we just thank you for this place we can come and talk about these things together. Just honestly, candidly, from your word, not pulling any punches. And uh, I thank you for this group that is opening up their heart to you in this hugely important area of their lives. May you give them the courage to follow you in this such a difficult area, give them strength to persevere, encouragement to follow. And for those who have been away from you and afraid to come home, that you would let them know that you are just like the father of the prodigal, that you will run to them. That you will run to them and embrace them and put the best robe you have on them and put the ring of sonship back on their finger, the seal of true sonship, and that you will kill the best calf you have for the great dinner of celebration because you so long for them to quit messing up their lives and to come home and be healed in their father's house. Oh God, just speak to their hearts and let them know of your love and yet let them know that you are not kidding on this. And that if they choose to rebel in light of the knowledge they have, 
they will find you a tough adversary. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.